Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Hello, and welcome to this week's Boss Podcast. I'm Kurt Bailey, and this week we are welcoming Rahul Vora, CEO and founder of Superhuman, and his Boss 2018 talk, Product Market Fit Engine. Rahul was previously the co-founder of Reportive, a Gmail plugin that displays your contact's social media information inside your email application. After selling Reportive to LinkedIn, Rahul worked with several startups in both investment and advisory capacities before setting up Superhuman, the world's fastest email experience. The video, slide deck and transcript, plus a follow-up hangout for this talk, can be found on businessofsoftware.org videos. Happy listening! The product market fit engine process in today's talk has five stages. One, survey your users. Two, segment them. Three, analyse what they say. Why do they love it and what holds them back? Four, decide what changes you're going to make. And then five, implement those changes and track. Woo! So I'm going to talk about product market fit. I couldn't imagine a better backdrop for that than this evolution of catapults and trebuchets, uh, although I should point out a trebuchet is a very specific thing, and <laughs> I, I was, yeah, and uh, I forced our team to build a trebuchet, when in retrospect, that was a very bad idea. Anyway, my name's Rahul, I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Superhuman, and we make the fastest email experience in the world. Our customers get through their inbox twice as fast as before, and many of them see inbox zero for the first time in years. This is the story of how we've built a product market fit engine. So product market fit is the number one reason why companies succeed. And the lack of product market fit is the number one reason why companies fail. But what really is product market fit? Paul Graham, the founder of YC, would say, it's when you made something that people want. Sam Altman, the president of YC, would say, it's when users love your product so much that they spontaneously, without you asking them, go and tell other people to use it. But it's perhaps Mark Andreessen, who has the most compelling, most vivid definition that I've come across. He says, product market fit, you can always feel it when it isn't happening. Your customers aren't quite getting value, usage isn't quite growing, word of mouth isn't spreading quite fast enough, press reviews are kind of blah. Sales cycles take too damn long. But you can almost always feel it when it is happening. Customers are buying as fast as you can add servers. You're constantly hiring for sales and support. Reporters are constantly calling you. Investment bankers are staking out your house. You just got Company of the Year Award from Harvard Business School. It's certainly a vivid definition, and one that I was staring at through tears in the summer 
of 2017. It seemed so subjective, so unactionable. What do you do if by this definition you don't have product market fit? Indeed, can you measure product market fit? If you could, then maybe you could optimize it. And maybe, just maybe, you could systematically, perhaps even numerically, increase it. Well, spoiler alert, it turns out you can do all of those things. You can measure it, you can systematically increase it, you can numerically work your way to product market fit. But before I share how, let's wind the clock back eight years. In 2010, I started this company, Reportive. We were the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. On the right-hand side of Gmail, we showed you what people looked like, where they were based, what they did, their recent tweets, links to their social media profiles. We grew rapidly, and less than two years later, we were acquired by LinkedIn. And in those four years, I developed a very intimate view of the email space. Gmail, which was once really fast and very clean, I could see becoming worse every single year. The UI becoming more cluttered, the code leaking more memory, requiring more CPU, slowing down your machine, and inexplicably still not working offline. And then on top of that, people were installing these plugins, like ours, Reportive, but also Mixmax, Boomerang, Clearbit, Yesware, you name it, they had it. And these plugins took each of those problems, clutter, performance, memory, offline, and made every single one dramatically worse. It was time for change. So we imagined an email experience that was blazingly fast, where searches were instantaneous, where everything happened in 100 milliseconds or less, an email experience where you could do everything from the keyboard. You never had to touch your mouse. You could fly through your inbox. An email experience where offline just worked, so you could be productive from anywhere. An email experience with all of the best Gmail plugins built in natively and which was still somehow subtle, minimal, and visually gorgeous. And so, in the summer of 2015, we opened an office, it's very fancy, as you can see, and we started to write code. And in the summer of 2016, we were still writing code. And in the summer of 2017, we were still writing code, although there were quite a few more of us at that point. I felt this incredible, intense pressure from the team and also from within myself to launch what we had built. After all, Reportive, the previous company, started 
grew, scaled, and was acquired in less time than we had been writing code. We were two years in, and we still had not launched. But no matter how much pressure I felt, I knew that deep down inside, if we launched, it would go really very badly. It wouldn't be the Mark Andreessen story. I did not believe that we had product market fit. But I couldn't just say that to the team. These are hyper ambitious, super intelligent engineers. They poured their hearts and their souls into building this product. That's not the message they wanted to hear. And so I started my search for the holy grail, for a way to define product market fit, for a way to measure product market fit, and for a methodology to increase product market fit. I searched high and low. I read everything I could find. I spoke to all the experts. And I found this guy, Sean Ellis. Who here has heard the term growth hacker? Let's raise our hands if we have. OK, that's pretty much everybody by this point. Sean invented that term. He ran early growth at Dropbox, LogMeIn, Eventbrite, and many other great companies too. As vivid and as compelling as the Mark Andreessen definition of product market fit is, and it's an accurate definition, it's a lagging indicator. By the time that investment bankers are staking out your house, and isn't that what all of us want, you've already won. You have product market fit. Sean found a leading indicator, one that is benchmarked and one that is predictive. You simply do this. Ask your users the following question. How would you feel if you could no longer use our product? And you let them say, very disappointed, or somewhat disappointed, or not disappointed at all. And then you count the percentage of people that said very disappointed. This is a very simple metric. And what Sean found, benchmarked on over 150 companies, is that those companies where the users who would be very disappointed without your product represented less than 40% of respondents, those companies almost always struggled to grow and struggled to get any kind of meaningful traction. But the companies where the percentage of respondents who were very disappointed was more than 40%, well, those companies grew easily. Those companies found traction easy. And many of those companies went on to achieve great success. This is an example of that question being answered by 731 <laughs> Slack users. 51% of those users would be very disappointed without Slack. 51 is greater than 40, therefore Slack has product market fit. Okay, so today that may seem abundantly obvious, 
But the purpose of this example is to show you just how hard it is to beat this benchmark. It's not easy. This metric is more objective than a feeling. This metric is more predictive than, say, net promoter score. And this metric is not only the best way that you can find to measure product market fit, it even lets you build a product market fit engine. And this engine gives you a way to systematically, even numerically, increase your product market fit. It will even write your roadmap for you, as we shall shortly see. The engine has five stages. Survey your users, segment them, analyze what they say, why do they love it, what holds them back, decide what changes you're going to make, implement those changes, and track. And we're going to dive into each one. I'm going to give you the blueprints for how you can do this on your own products at your own companies. Step one, survey. So these are the four questions that you want to ask all of your users. How would you feel if you could no longer use the product that we just discussed? Number two, what type of people do you think would most benefit from your product? Number three, what is the main benefit of the product to you? And number four, how can we improve the product for you? This is a very short survey. The three latter questions, they should have open-ended answers. You want to get ideally long text responses from people. And each of these questions is very important. They come into play at different points in the product market fit engine. Once you have these questions, you want to send the survey out to all of your users. You want to give your users an opportunity to try the core experience of your product. They should at least have used your product twice. For Superhuman, we send it about 21 days into the journey of a user. And these are the results that we got in April of 2017. A mere 22% of our users would have been very disappointed without Superhuman. We were clearly nowhere near product market fit. And that may seem sad, but now at least I had the language and the tools to explain that to my team. So what can we do to increase the percentage of users who'd be very disappointed without the product? What can we do to increase that very disappointed segment of this pie? Well, that's step two. And it's all about segmenting. And this part's kind of like magic. It, it goes real fast. So we want to understand who are the people who really, truly, deep down, love our product. And the way that I like to do this is using a concept called the high expectation customer. This is a concept I found from Julie Supan, who ran early marketing at Airbnb, Dropbox, and many other great companies too. The high expectation customer is the most discerning person in your target market. They will enjoy your product for its greatest benefit, and importantly, they will help spread the word. Now, other people who might not be quite as high expectation will aspire 
to be like this high expectation customer because they see them as clever or as judicious or as insightful. Now you want to create as rich a profile as you can of your high expectation customer. But let me give you some examples. Let's think about Dropbox. The Dropbox HXC wants to simplify their life. They're very trusting, they're technically sophisticated, and they really just want to get time back at the day. At the end of the day, they want to know that a service, Dropbox, has their back when it comes to their life's work. I'm a Dropbox HXC, and I'm sure many of us in this room here today are as well. Here's another example, Airbnb. The Airbnb HXC does not simply want to travel. They want to go somewhere and experience it like they belong. They want to go to Paris and live like a local. They're energized by that kind of experience. Airbnb's great successes came from in the early days focusing on high expectation customers like these that then drove taste making in the rest of the market. So here's the insight. You want to go back to the survey results. You want to take all of the respondents who said they'd be very disappointed without your product. And you want to analyze in detail their responses to question number two. Question number two was, what type of people do you think would most benefit from your product? And the cool part is that people who love your product will almost always describe themselves in the words that matter most to them. Notice we didn't say, can you describe who you are? We didn't say, what do you do? We didn't say anything like that. We just said, who is this best for? And correlated it with who most loves the product. Try it. You'll see they almost always describe themselves. And you'll get it in the most authentic words possible. You can then take all of that data and build a rich profile. I'd like you to meet Nicole. Nicole is the superhuman, high expectation customer. She's a hardworking professional. She deals with many people. She might be an executive, a founder, an investor, a manager, or many other job roles. She works really long and actually often into the weekend. She considers herself busy and she wishes she had more time. She does feel productive though. And she is self-aware enough to realize that she could be better. And occasionally she'll have time to investigate ways to improve. Now she spends much of her days in her work inbox. On a typical day, she's going to receive and read at least 100 emails, perhaps 200, maybe even more. And on a typical day, she'll send 15, 40, if things are getting really crazy, maybe 80 emails a day. Critically, she considers it part of her job to be responsive, and she prides herself on being so, because she knows that when she isn't responsive, it will either block her team, or it will cause her to miss opportunities, or she'll damage her own reputation. She aims to get to inbox zero, but she doesn't get there very often, perhaps two or three times a week. And very occasionally, perhaps once a year, she'll say, to hell with this, and just wipe her inbox clean, declaring email inbox bankruptcy. Now, she generally has a growth mindset. She is very open-minded about new products and keeps up to date with technology. However, 
when it comes to email, she probably does have a fixed mindset. Gmail is what it's always been and that's what it's always going to be. While she is open in theory to the idea of new clients, she's skeptical that one could make her go faster. This is the level of detail, if not more detail, that I encourage you to design your HXC for. Now once you have this persona, we come back to the survey results. And we tag each one with who they are. Here you can see the very disappointed crowd, i.e. the people who love the product the most up in the top left. Down at the bottom, you have all the people who are fairly meh about the products. And in the top right, you have all the people like, I really don't like this thing. It's not useful to me at all. And here's the magic. You take your HXC, you take the persona profiles that you just assigned to these very disappointed users, and you use that to narrow the field. In this case, we're deliberately ignoring everyone who isn't these people. We're deliberately ignoring sales, customer success, engineering, data science, any other role, and focusing only on the roles that most correlated with the people who really love our product. And the impact of that is huge. It takes just a few minutes. And in those few minutes, we added 10% to our product market fit score. We jumped from 22 to 32. Now, we're not quite at 40% yet, but that's really high ROI from just a few minutes of analysis. Speaking of analysis, that is the next step of the funnel. So we've done a survey. We've done our segmentation. We figured out our high expectation customer. We know the profile of the person who really loves what your product is. Now we need to answer two more questions. Those people who really love your product, why? What is it about your product that they love? And just as importantly, the people who don't love your product, what's holding them back? So we're going to do two different analyses. You want to go to question number three. What is the main benefit of the product to you? And again, you want to scope this. So only read the answers for the people who said they'd be very disappointed without your product. Here are some superhuman examples. Processing email is much faster. I get through my inbox in half the time. The app is crazy fast. The shortcuts make me an actual superhuman. I wish that were true. Faster responsiveness, navigation. Superhuman is so much faster than using Gmail. More efficient with my time. I can work through my incoming email more quickly. Speed, aesthetics, everything from the keyboard. Speed and a great set of shortcuts. Read through these, load it all into your head, and then the easiest way to get a grip on what people are saying is just to throw it into a word cloud. And we print this out and we stick it really big on our wall. You can see as clear as day that the people who most love Superhuman love it for its speed, its keyboard shortcuts, and the sense of flow that you have when you're in the product. So that's why people really, really love your product. You now need to go back to this pie and figure out how on earth are we going to increase the size of the somewhat, oh sorry, increase the size of the, the very disappointed crowd.
And remember, the very disappointed crowd are the people who'd be very disappointed without your product. They are the people who love you. Now, as painful as it is for me to say this, do not pay any attention to the people who say they would be not disappointed without your product. They may actually be your loudest users, and they may be your most demanding, and they may ask for all kinds of things. But guess what? At the end of the day, that's all just distraction. You can build all the things they want, and they would probably still be not disappointed without your product. So just discard those responses immediately. But the other crowd, the somewhat disappointed crowd, we can do real work there. Again, I can't stress this enough. Do not just go and directly act on their feedback. You'll end up with a mess of a product, and you won't increase your product market fit score. I can guarantee it. Here's what you do instead. We need to figure out which of these people to pay attention to. Which of these people, if you built their thing, if you serviced their requests, could convert and become fanatical and would be very disappointed without your product? So we segment again. We take the main benefit that we discovered in the previous step, which was speed primarily and keyboard shortcuts secondarily for us. And we use that to segment the somewhat disappointed crowd. Look at their surveys. See how they answered that question. How many of them were also talking about speed? Those are the people that you should focus on. And in our case, that was two-thirds of this segment. The other one-third, as painful as it is, do not work on their requests. You'll just waste your time. But the two-thirds who agree with the people who really love your product about what makes it special, you work on their requests and you can convert them into being very disappointed. Here's what they asked for. So this is the analysis of the fourth and final question. How can we improve the product for you? Once again, go through all the survey results, read them all, I recommend organizing a group meeting, get all your product leaders, your engineers in one room, read through them all, and then summarize it like this. And put it up on your wall next to the other circle. These are the things that are holding people back, people who are this close from falling in love with your product. For us, it was a mobile app. OK, that makes sense. Uh, that's not very interesting. But the, all the things beneath it are much less obvious and much more interesting better integrations, better handling of attachments, calendaring, better search, read receipts, unified inbox, better handling of unread. These are things that a, a typical product management process wouldn't find. A typical product management process is gonna be looking at where the market is going, looking at what the competition is doing, at maybe all of the feedback from your users triaged. This is a very specific way to focus on the feedback that is most likely to increase your product market fit. And that brings us on to the next stage, which is to implement. So the whole purpose of this product market fit engine is not just a way to measure product market fit, but it's to increase it. So here's what we do. We spend 50% of our resources doubling down. We're building more of the stuff 
that the very disappointed users, the people who really love our product, were building more of the stuff that they like. In our case, that means more speed, more shortcuts, more efficiency, more beautiful things. And just as importantly, we spend the other half of our time, money, and attention systematically addressing the objections, but only of the people who are somewhat disappointed without the product, who happen to agree with the people who love the product on what the main benefit of the product is. And you just work down this list, 50-50. The final stage of this is to track. This framework will work, I can guarantee it, but it is not a silver bullet, and things change, and your users change, and the market changes. So as you're working on these pieces of feedback, on doubling down on what the very disappointed users like, and systematically addressing what holds back the somewhat disappointed users, you should constantly be surveying send that survey out to every single user who signs up. Build this product market fit score into the dashboard of your company. In our company, it's one of the very few numbers that we actually run the organization with. Make it very large, make it visible. Report on it weekly, monthly, quarterly. And I would recommend doing that VD-SD road mapping exercise on a quarterly basis. Here are the results from Superhuman. So, in that quarter, Q2 of 2017, as you recall, after our segmenting ninjutsu, we jumped from 22% to 33%. A quarter later, we were at 47%, raced past the 40% benchmark. But there's a law with all metrics is that they all go down over time. Your lead quality will go down over time. Excitement about your company will go down over time. And so you have to keep on pushing. A quarter later, we were at 56%. And a quarter after that, we were at 58%. And you can see this beautiful asymptote beginning to happen as we saturate that two-thirds of somewhat disappointed users and start converting them over. This product market fit engine really does work. And I'm shocked that more people don't know about the underlying metric and haven't built it into a way to operationalize how we think about building product. It gives us a way not just to define product market fit, but a way to measure it. And it gives us a methodology for increasing it. I really hope that some of you, when you go home, take this and get to try operationalizing it inside your own companies, because it's been transformative to our own company. And if you do, please let me know, because I would very much love to help you along. I'm still learning this stuff as we go. Now, I'm going to break here early for questions. We have about 20, 25 minutes left, because this is a very nuanced topic, and there's a lot more detail behind that, failed approaches and so on. Uh, that I'd love to share with you. But I thought you guys instead could ask me what's on your minds. And so with that, we'll go over to questions. Yes.
products. Rich. Great. Uh, thanks. Very interesting. I, I wonder, uh, I see a lot of products where the segment of people who would be very disappointed is too small to sustain the thing we're doing. What do we do when that's not a big enough slice and, and growing it's not going to be sufficient? Uh, the rule of thumb that I have is if your product is in the 15 to 20% very disappointed range or less, then you almost certainly have entirely the wrong product or entirely the wrong market. And I would not advise using this approach if you're in that 15 to 20% range. We were actually close. We were only 22%, but I had just enough conviction in what we were building, um, and the segmenting exercise added another 10%. So actually, I, I should uh, rephrase that answer. Do the segmenting exercise first. If you're still only 15 to 20%, it's time to ch dramatically change the product or the market. Thank you. Doug. Yeah. The four questions were great. How did you determine what role the different people played? They were a developer, they were in sales, they were this. Did you have some additional questions you asked? Yeah, let's head back to the four questions. It is the second question. It's actually one of the most important ones. Okay, there you go. So notice the second question is what type of person do you think would most benefit from this product? Now, it's very important in this methodology that you don't just ask who are you and what do you do? Because you want the words of the user. There's a whole separate talk I can do on positioning. But in order to market a product that has product market fit well, there is no better set of words than what came out of a user's mind. And that's what this question is designed to elicit. So that's how we answer what role are you. Not just what role are you, but how would you describe what role you are. Um, it won't give you everything, especially for the somewhat disappointed users and not disappointed users. And for them, I would recommend just taking all your emails, throwing it into an email lookup service like Clearbit or Full Contact, um, or building your own version of that. Uh, very nice presentation. I like it very much. I'm always looking for ways to get information for our, from our customers. My question is, how do you get your customers to answer this? <laughs> Great question. How do you get your customers to answer this? Yeah, I just go and visit them one by one. No, not really. Um, we send an email. We send an email 21 days, roughly speaking, after they've started to use the product. You're probably wondering, well, does this work if not everybody answers? And clearly, not everybody's going to answer this. But that's where the 40% benchmark comes in. That number has non-response baked into it. That's why I said you shouldn't nag. You shouldn't be like, hey, fill out the survey. Hey, fill out the survey. Hey, fill out the... No, because that will skew your numbers. Just send the email um, and include a link. We we obviously don't send this piece of paper. We have a link to a type form, uh, and that's all you need to do. Hi, Rahul. So this is actually a piggyback now on what Ricardo just asked. Do you resend this question to users who have been using this for a longer period of time? Uh, and the reason I ask this is because our user base tends to be fairly static. And getting a good response set, I think, over time might be a challenge for us. So, and, and doing it quarterly might 
fatigue people to see that same message constantly. So do you have any advice for a company like ours? Uh, sure. Can you give us uh, a rough idea, order of magnitude of the user set, the size? Of our, of our yeah. <laughs> 10,000. Okay. Um, so first of all, I would definitely not multiply survey, survey users. Uh, you will absolutely get skewed results if you ask the same user this question multiple times. Uh, and I, secondly, it's really interesting, but if you do a quick analysis on how many responses you need in order to start getting statistically significant results, it's really not that many. Even at around 50 responses, you'll obviously have to survey more people than 50 to get 50 responses, but even with 50 responses, you start to get statistically significant results from this. Uh, so with, with the size of the user base you have, I suspect you'll be able to get at least a directionally correct idea of how you're doing. Okay. Igor. Rahul, thanks very much for, for the great talk. Uh, um, I hope this is recorded, so I'll make our marketing guy watch it several times. Um, uh, on the same lines, uh, do you, are there any concerns about the sincerity of the answers? Uh, would you know, a customer would just uh, want to make you feel better and answer uh, in a skewed way? And uh, a, a second question is, uh, do you think about any kind of smart way to integrate that polling into the product itself? Can you share your thoughts on that? I think that's the genius of this question. Uh, and, and Sean did a great job in coming up with it. It's very different to a 10-point scale. I think Jared did a good job of systematically taking that apart. <laughs> it's very different to Net Promoter. When you ask people, do you like me, then they'll be like, yes, I guess I like you. Go away now, please, or something. Uh, it, those questions are very leading, in my opinion. But when you turn the question around and you ask it in this negative way, and you say, how would you feel if this thing weren't here? And then you limit the response size from 11 or 10 down to just three possible answers. And everyone can, everyone can intuit the difference between very disappointed and somewhat disappointed. You actually remove almost all of that bias. Now, I would say if the, if the person you're asking actually personally knows you, yeah, they're way more likely to say very disappointed. And we had that for perhaps the first 50 survey results that, that we got back in. And so for the purpose of the numbers that I, I showed on the screen, we just completely ignored those surveys. We ran this whole thing for a quarter or so before we started to pay attention to it. Um, the second question was, are there smart ways of asking people this question? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's any myriad number of ways. We, we make an email product, and so we like to keep things email native, uh, but I could imagine having the intercom operator bot ask this. I could imagine having a text message uh, if you have a mobile app, ask this, or an in-app notification, or really any other way that you can reasonably interrupt a user. Thank you. Um, Alison. Hi there. Thank you so much for your talk. Oh. Um, oh, great. Oh, uh -huh. <laughs> She's not doing bunny ears or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I'm curious as to how you would apply this method when um, 
I know we're at a software conference, but if we, if you don't have a product, but rather a service. So for example, a use case would be a tech agency who, uh, that builds iOS apps or uh, maybe, maybe um, provides like content marketing services. How would you go about finding a product fit uh, in that case? That's a good question. Let me think about that for a second. Okay, I have a question for you. Uh, this, you know, this survey is really designed to get at a few different things. It's dependency on the product. It could be uniqueness in the marketplace, differentiation, and also the emotional bond that people have with what it is you're providing. So if you were to describe in a sentence or two, how is your agency differentiated in the market? Then I might be able to answer your question better. So uh, I work for several different agencies, so it would really depend on which one I'm working for. Um, but I do think that um, the, the commonality between the different clients I tend to work for is that um, they are, are exceptional when it comes to um, providing user experience. So, so that's what I can answer you, but it is case by case. So, Okay, so in this case, I would say that Actually, you would probably be better off with another metric that is designed to get to the things I would suspect you care about. I would suspect you care about the willingness to recommend, for example. Uh, and that's a, that measures a different thing to what this measures. This was really benchmarked, if you're going to apply the 40% number, against high growth, usually venture-backed companies that are creating a product that is designed to play a meaningful part in someone's life. Um, for a consultancy or an agency where almost all new uh, work is coming in through referral, then I would ask a question that is specifically designed for that. That's amazing. Um, now, Tyler, um, first time at Boss, this guy's pretty, pretty awesome. I had a little interview with him yesterday. I've got a new phone, so I'm not very good with it. And um, I asked him what he felt about Boss. He gave me like a little 30-second answer, and at the end of it, I had a fantastic picture. <coughs> so I then worked out where the video button was, and um, <laughs> he then, off the, off the cuff, gave another 30-second answer, which was precisely the same thing that he'd said, and I don't think I've ever had someone <laughs> just extemporize that like that so precisely. So, Tyler. Thanks, Mark. Um, thanks for the great talk. I, I really loved it. Um, this seems to work or it seems to be a very applicable process for a situation where you're selling to someone who's making the uh, purchasing decision and they're the majority of the users. Uh, what are your thoughts on a situation where uh, the, you're selling to someone, but the majority of the users, for them, it's uh, like compulsory, like in more of a B2B scenario where you, you sort of sell to uh, smaller amounts of purchasing agents and then they sort of distribute the uh, software, the tool out um, to a majority of, of users who don't really drive that, that purchasing decision as much? I would, I would actually say a very similar thing to what I just said, which is uh, we need to be clear about what objective we're trying to drive for the business. I don't know the particulars of your business, and so it might be the case that if you can successfully sell lots of your first layer, the next layer takes care of itself. 
That sounds pretty cool if so. Or it might be the case that that first layer really needs to see true love and evangelism in that second layer in order to keep on working with you over the long term. If it's the former, then I would use this, but on that first layer, who then resell you. If it's the latter, if you really care about making huge impact in the lives of the end users, and that's what's gonna make your company successful, then I would survey them. Now I suspect that in practice, it's gonna be a combination of both, perhaps short-term first layer, long-term second layer, uh, in which case there's your answer. In the short-term, I would survey uh, the people who resell, and in the long-term, I would survey the end users. Thank you. Um, Lindsay. Tracy. Sorry, Trent, Tracy. No problem. Tracy. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the gap between when you said you'd been working on this for two years. Um, you didn't feel like you had product market fit, but you didn't know and you felt like you needed something more tangible to tell the team. And then this chart, because you have to start getting early users. And so I'm trying to figure out how you got those users that gap between what you believed you needed to provide to satisfy a certain market, what you had at two years, and then how you got users on board and, and really tried to separate that feedback from early adopters who were willing to take less versus who you th thought your target customer ultimately was going to be. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great question. Great many questions. All right. Uh, okay, so I think one of the first questions was how did we have users, maybe there was a gap at that time, people that we couldn't survey, couldn't ask. Uh, when we started this process, if I recall correctly, we had around 100 paying customers, and our product costs $30 a month. So it's actually not very, not very many customers at all. Um, but if you recall my previous answer, you start to get statistically significant responses when you have, or results rather, when you have around 40 or 50 responses. And so it was enough to sort of get a directionally correct idea of, of where we were. It was clearly enough to know that we did not have product market fit. And that was the first very difficult thing that I had to internalize. And then I had to figure out how to convey to a team without just saying, we're screwed, yay. Um, instead, you want to say, it's not going well, but there is a plan. We just have to do this thing. Um, <clears throat> the other question you asked was, the gap between what I thought we had to build and what we needed to build in order to be successful. So I think we got very lucky in the sense that if you look at what the VD users liked, remember the VD users are the ones who really, really love your product, the stuff. This is exactly what I wrote down two years prior, saying, I believe this doesn't exist. And it, I think I just got lucky having been an insider on the email space for many years. I was able to see Gmail decaying, I think faster than other people noticed it decaying. And so I, I just wrote this down and got that one correct. What I didn't foresee, because no one can see everything about your users, they're a surprising bunch, is the importance of this stuff. And that's where the, that's where the survey becomes really, really valuable. And I've been on previous engineering teams where we did not do this. 
and the default mode of operation for that team is, uh, this is the, the normal level of sophistication I see, is you get a whole bunch of feedback in, you sort of score it by how severe it seems, by how many times it's been asked for, does this client pay you a lot, and then you just go work on that list. And that's how you end up wasting resources and wasting cycles and building an undifferentiated product that kind of does a little bit of everything. What this lets you do if you're leading a team is really focus on the things that are going to increase the size of your very disappointed segment, the people who really love your product. And so that's how I bridge that gap. Thank you. Mark. Hey, um, digging into the, a similar point to as uh, said earlier, what it, I can see how this would work for a kind of high volume kind of B2C business, but if you've got a more complicated buyer group, uh, so you're selling into an organization, you've got end user value propositions, organizational value propositions, you've got uh, sales, ob things you do for sales objections which are never part of the end user or emotional jobs to be done for the purchaser rather than the end user. Have you got any thoughts about how you mix all that in if you're selling this uh, to a, a complex group of buyers rather than just the end user? Uh, yes. So. When this survey was initially being developed, uh, it was initially created for consumer companies and B2B SaaS companies, but not the far end of the spectrum of complex enterprise sales. Even in the constellation that you outlined, I would imagine that, like with any enterprise sale, there is, there is a most important person there is a most important constituent. Not everyone will, uh, you, you can't stack rank everyone into one single line, but there's probably someone that you care the most about because if you delight them, then their energy will just start spreading across the organization. You I can guess probably- my worry is that it's not necessarily the end user. The end user is necessary, but not sufficient for the purchase in a lot of cases of enterprise software. Yes, and so if it's actually somebody else, if it's, for example, the person who runs information technology, then I see no reason why you couldn't use this survey for them in a directional sense. I just, in that case, I would not obsess over the 40% benchmark. I would just use the methodology for increasing the number. The 40% benchmark only really makes sense if you're talking about a high-growth venture-backed product company. Yes, um, oh, for the... Number four, implement phase, you said that 50% you double down on one group and 50% you double down on another group. The process of double downing, I can understand, is based off of taking the words from those groups and trying to decide on the appropriate action uh, for you and your group to take. Can you describe what that process looks like? Uh, how do you take these words and translate them into actions that therefore increase your, um, your very disappointed group percentage? Okay, so <clears throat> there are two different processes for doubling down for the VD group and the SD group. Which one are you more interested in? Probably the somewhat disappointed. That's the okay. goal, right? To increase them to the yeah. very disappointed? Okay, so for the somewhat disappointed crowd, the part that I haven't described is building a world-class customer success product management engine. And one of the things that most companies actually don't do a particularly great job of doing is 
diligently tagging and systematizing all of the feedback you're receiving on all of these different things. So I skipped the slide, but you can these are all nice things that people are saying. You can imagine exactly the same set of things that aren't quite so nice. And we have individually logged and triaged, uh, I think at this point, 12 or 13,000 different, different sentences in the words of the user related to that red word cloud. And these go into our CRM. We happen to use Airtable. Uh, and I made it very clear early on that we need the actual words of the user. And then we rank the, the things that we want to work on by the size of the word in this list. And when it's time to work on calendaring, for example, we go into that CRM and I would ask the product manager, in this case actually for calendaring it was me, to load the hundreds if not thousands of pieces of feedback that we've received on that feature into the head all at once. Literally just sit down and read everything for hours until it's all in your head. And distill it down into use cases, jobs to be done, whatever framework you really like, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> uh, and write your product spec when you're in that mind frame. Because if you do it that way, you'll end up with a much more nuanced solution than what many companies do, which is, oh, hey, it seems like we need to build a calendaring thing. Let's go and talk to 50 people about their calendaring problems and see, uh, and see what they feel. Because when you're having that face-to-face, -face you know, people are just going to be polite and they won't quite tell you the things that they need. When you have thousands of pieces of feedback in the actual words of the user with the distance of a screen and email, uh, you'll get real feedback. So that's how you work on the SD stuff. Dopsy. Hi. Um, great, great Hi. talk. Um, so um, I've got two questions because uh, you were constantly monitoring and course correcting. So that course correction was happening with new user feedback. So you make the corrections and as the new users are coming in, you're seeing whether you're getting slightly better. I just wanted to confirm what that is. And if you have an existing product or service that you think that you could apply these things to, to what extent do you think that you could do this in um, a non-traditional um, so you made the, the case very strongly that this is a particular technique that works for a VC-backed, um, high-growth consumer, mainly facing um, um, software product. But if you could see parallels of the principles that you could apply to an existing product or service, could you talk about the ways in which um, you might manage how you uh, improve that number in the same way. You're right, we are tracking this over time. We look at the number weekly, and it rolls up into a monthly aggregate, and it rolls up into a uh, quarterly aggregate. And the reason it's important to do the roll-ups, at least for a high-velocity, low-price-point business like ours, uh, you're gonna get streams of random traffic coming from different sources at different times. So recently, uh, the email space is in kind of a meltdown, so Newton unfortunately had to shut down because uh, their churn was too high, and uh, Astro decided to shut down because they were required by Slack, and Google's pulled the plug on Inbox, and that will formally be shutting down uh, in Q1 of next year, and it's already hemorrhaging users. And so we've just had like this fire hose of not particularly well-qualified users, or less qualified than they used to be. And so, if you don't do this multiple sort of fractal level of roll-up, you're going to get odd skews at different frequencies. 
uh, and that's why it's important to do that. Um, to your second question of can you apply this in a, uh, you know, a non-high-growth venture-backed setting, I see no reason why that wouldn't. I just wouldn't particularly care about being above or below 40. Um, oh, Mike. Hello, back here in the uh, left up, corner. Up there. So I had a question for you about um, where in the customer journey that you start asking the, the, the four questions that you listed. And I know that you had said that you ask about three weeks out uh, past, after they start using the product. And my, I would imagine that when you start asking that question depends a lot on when they get value. So if somebody signs up and they don't really see the value of your product until 14 days out or 30 days out or 45, it should seem like it would push that out. So I'm just curious, like for context, how quickly do your users see value? And like if it's day one, then obviously it seems like it would be about 21 days after they start seeing value. I'm just curious where that line roughly is. Uh, so very roughly speaking, if you were to ask Sean, he would say about two weeks on average for a average consumer or B2B SaaS product that this was designed for. Um, and that the person should have used your product at least twice. The most important thing, though, is they've experienced the core of what makes your product hopefully great. That could be as short as four days. It could be as short as one day, maybe, if you have a, a transactional one-time use business where you're expecting someone to, like Uber to come back um, multiple times over the next few days. Um, for us, we have a, a relatively complex product in the email space. Uh, and it takes time for people to understand what makes it special, and that's why we wait three weeks. Don't forget you can sign up to receive regular updates from Boss with videos and news by email. Visit businessofsoftware.org update to find out more. If you enjoy these podcasts, we would love to hear your feedback. The best place to leave a review is Apple Podcasts, or you can get in touch with the team on Twitter at at BossConference. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.